The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Different lawyers fit different clients. We have different ways of doing things and different personalities. And I think it's important to talk to clients about how they want to work with you down to, you know, is it emails you like or WhatsApp or meetings, but also if there is something that you feel you can't ask me or you can't tell me, then I'm not going to be the right lawyer for you. And one of the things that they cannot feel is that they are just another file in my cabinet. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. I'm Yasmin. Great to have your company. So today I'm talking to Lindsay Bull. And Lindsay is a partner at Pennington's Manches Cooper PMC. She is the head of the Modern Family team. And you'll find out why um, they've called it the Modern Family, because we're going to get into uh, issues about surrogacy, polyamorous relationships, the law surrounding those issues, um, the Law Commission's report regarding the laws on surrogacy. So this is going to be a really fascinating um, podcast interview Uh, cutting-edge stuff. I learned an awful lot in this episode. I learned, even though I knew this before, that families are made up in in so many different ways and society is changing, evolving, and the law has a lot of catching up to do in that respect. I didn't realise, actually, the makeup of um, so many different types of families and actually some of the things that can happen along the way. You know, a a person can die, uh, relationships can break down, Um, all sorts of disagreements can happen and how does the law deal with that? But also another thing I learned is the toll this can take on the family lawyer themselves. You know, they are a therapist, they are a counsellor, a bereavement counsellor and a lawyer and they've got to deal with a range of emotions on top of things that may be going on in their own lives and having to manage their clients expectations in an area where actually there's a lot of uncertainty and the lawyer has to deal with all of that so I learned that actually that 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 type of lawyer has to have a huge skill set to deal with these very sensitive and delicate issues involving children and families so sit back listen and enjoy this episode and as ever please let us know what you think the hearing lindsay bull welcome to the hearing great to have your company and great to see you thank you yasmin it's very nice to be invited absolutely well let's get into it because i'm really looking forward to this conversation so let's start with a little bit of background about you and then i'd love to get into surrogacy and what the law is surrounding surrogacy and the law commission's um, proposals on this and then uh, other aspects of your work as well which are really really fascinating i'm sure our listeners will really enjoy this one so firstly lindsay a little bit about you tell us about your journey um because you are currently the head of the Modern Family Team at Pennington's. Now, what is the full title? It isn't just Pennington's. It's Pennington's Manchester Cooper, but I think we could probably both say PMC. PMC for ease, absolutely. Bit of a mouthful. So firstly, tell us about how you became the head of the Modern Family Team and and, and your journey up to that date. Um, So I am the first lawyer in my family and... Uh, the first person that went to university, I'd really like to say that I do family law because I'd read an inspiring judgment that stayed with me. But actually, I really liked the TV show LA Law. So on a Thursday night when I was 11, I would stay up and watch that. And the coolest lawyer who had the best cases was Arnie Becker. And 
from then, when I did work experience, I would enjoy the family law cases, the family law hearings I went to the most. And I think that's because of the client connection, of the importance of those cases to the individual. Um, the, the vulnerability of those clients kind of really stuck with me. And, you know, just that wanting to help those clients, seeing how family law was changing was very interesting. Um, I then did a non-law degree, went on to do the conversion course in the LPC, as it was then, and had the fortune of getting uh, a family law-based training contract with a firm called Dawson Cornwall, who are a fantastic firm. And I worked with the late John Cornwall, who set up Resolution in the 80s, which carries on today. It's an amazing community of legal professionals who recognise that family cases are should be resolved in a constructive way. So we shouldn't be using inflammatory language. We should be working together because there is a family at the heart of the litigation. So that's how I got to kind of family law work. I then started doing modern family work probably around the time that the Civil Partnership Act came in. I worked on an incredibly interesting case, which was the first civil uh, partnership dissolution case. We went to the High Court. We had a a trial. Uh, We started a trial. We got to day one in the High Court and it was going to be, you know, we were making new law. The case then settled on day one. So we didn't get our reported decision. We didn't make the new law. The judge was very interested in the case and I think also disappointed not to be able to grapple with it. The client was very, very pleased. And on the back of that, I then advertised as being a gay-friendly lawyer on the Stonewall website. Mm. I got a call, I think, the Friday before I was due to go on a holiday from a client saying that him and his male partner had had two children with a lesbian couple. That parenting unit had been working well for a long time, well enough for them to have two children. The call had been prompted by the fact that there'd been a disagreement and that parenting unit had broken down and they weren't seeing their children. That case is, I think I worked on it for eight years. So we had more than 20 hearings. We probably saw more than 20 different judges. Um, There's a reported decision on that case I think it's AR and RWB. Mm. It's a high court case. It was incredibly stressful for those clients and for the lawyers involved, actually. In one of the judgments, uh, it was noted that the professionals dealing with the case had found it amongst the most challenging that they'd ever done. And there were professionals with, you know, 20 or 30 years experience. So Mm. it was an amazing case to work on. The clients were fantastic to work with. And that case really sparked my interest and started my understanding of how people are now creating their families because that's changing and the law is playing catch up. So we were in a position where there wasn't much case law for us to look at. Mm. The clients felt increased vulnerability about that. And as I say, it's one that will always stick with me and we from that case my interest developed we started to think about preconception agreements so having something in writing in place before you 
embark on parenting with a, another person or a group of people. And I did some work around preconception agreements. And from there, really built my modern family practice. So I advise on all aspects of family law, but modern family is really my mm. specialism. And that encompasses surrogacy, as you say, same-sex parenting units, polyamorous relationships, artificial insemination cases. Mm. So incredibly interesting, very human work. That's really, really sounds really fascinating. And that's probably why, when when was the title changed then to Modern Family Team? Because I did family law, well, we're talking yeah. about 20-odd years ago, and there was no modern in the title there. It was just the family law department. So is that something unique to PMC that it's called modern family or that's a specialism that you have or what? I think there are a number of firms that will have modern family teams and, and call it that. Yeah. It's probably a title that I've seen really since I've been at PMC. So maybe the past five years in the past, people have used alternate uh, alternative families or people are using creating families. Mm. Um, but I think modern families actually encapsulates the work that we do very well yeah yeah and you know the law is playing catch up with as you say how yeah. society is is changing and how families are formed in all different ways and this is probably why the law commission of england and wales published their report on the 29th of march of this year 2023 regarding the laws of, on surrogacy because as my understanding is the reading that i've done in this is that the law hasn't been updated in this area for, for like 30 years or something. And it was a knee-jerk reaction really to a case back then, 30 years ago, that they actually, um, you know, put some legislation in place. Um, and since then, so much has changed in society, hasn't it? And, and advanced exactly. technology and everything. So what, what would be helpful, Lindsay, is firstly, you know, I'm sure people probably know this on maybe a basic level, but could you explain what, What's what we mean by surrogacy? My understanding is there's two types, but could you sort of explain that first? Then we'll go into what the law is currently and what the Law Commission's proposals are in this area. Absolutely. So surrogacy is the practice of a woman, the surrogate, becoming pregnant with a child that may or may not be genetically related to her. The surrogate then carries the child and gives birth to the child or children for another family. So that would be the intended parent or parents or commissioning parents. You're right that there's two types of surrogacy. There's traditional surrogacy, which we sometimes refer to as straight or partial surrogacy. And that's a surrogacy arrangement where the surrogate is genetically related to the child born of the surrogacy arrangement because her own egg is used. So artificial insemination, not sexual intercourse, is going to be used to conceive the child. We've then got gestational, so host or full surrogacy. And that's where the surrogate isn't genetically related to the child born of the surrogacy arrangement because her eggs have not been used. So IVF is then used to create the child. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. So what what is the law currently in terms of, you know, what rights does the surrogate have? Uh, what rights do the intended parents have? So at the moment, surrogacy is permitted here for single parents and for couples. But agencies that do domestic surrogacy 
have to operate on a non-profit basis. So we talk about commercial surrogacy being illegal here, which is why there are limited surrogates because you know people are taking time out of their lives, their work to carry a child for somebody. You know they're losing money. They need healthcare. It's an expensive exercise. Is probably the wrong word, but venture for them. Um, people are going through domestic surrogacy arrangements or international surrogacy arrangements. I probably see more international surrogacy clients than I do domestic clients. That that's me and the wider modern family team. There aren't any international conventions which govern surrogacy. So one point that not everybody is aware of when they're starting this journey is that if you do surrogacy overseas, even somewhere like, I don't know, LA, where they're well used to doing surrogacy, people go through very ethical surrogacy journeys where the surrogates and the intended parents are really properly and well supported, those overseas orders aren't recognised here. And so people can sometimes get a shock where they get their international surrogacy, their parental orders overseas. They have to come back here to be told they're not the legal parent. So at the point that a child is born from a surrogacy arrangement, the surrogate is a legal parent. The surrogate's partner, civil partner or husband, may be a legal parent. But under the current law, the intended parent, it may be that neither of them are legal parents, one of them will have to have a genetic link. So you have people going through surrogacy journeys where they're using old law. So we've got the Surrogacy Arrangements Act, which is 85. That's where we're talking about commercial surrogacy here being illegal. And then we're looking at the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act 2008. So again, quite old. Those two statutes, together with the case law, so law that's been established by decisions in the court. So in our terms, it's quite old, which, you know, you're exactly right. It's why the Law Commission has put forward these proposals, which are really welcome. We've been waiting quite a long time for that. Mm. And we may be waiting quite a long time for those proposals to become law. Mm. And one of the issues that people have when they're going through this journey you know it takes quite a long time if people are waiting for the law to change before they embark on their journey that's also something they may have to wait for because there are a limited pool of people that go down this route so it's not the top of the agenda for the lawmakers but obviously for the people embarking on these surrogacy journeys it's it's absolutely vital to their family life. It is the biggest thing that they are doing. And it's incredibly frightening for them mm. because the law isn't, we would say, fit for purpose. Yeah, yeah. So my understanding is from what you're saying is even if, you know, both types of surrogacy that you mentioned, one where the surrogate has a genetic link to the child, the other where they don't, where actually the intended parent, one or both have a genetic link. In both yeah. cases of the surrogacy arrangement, the surrogate is the legal parent from birth. Yes. And until the intended parents get the parental order, which my understanding is it could take four to up to 12 months, which is a long time without that legal status, 
the surrogate remains the legal parent until that time the, the parental order is made. Now, the Law Commission, I, I think the proposal is, is to overturn that so that actually the intended parents from the point of birth will have that legal parentage. Um, is that right? Yes. So the reason that legal parenthood is so important is because that provides this lifelong legal parent-child connection, which then affects a wide range of areas. So it's the child's nationality, it's points around inheritance and financial responsibility. It's also very important for the child, obviously, to be clear on who its legal parents are and their origin journey, their life story. Mm. So legal parenthood is extremely important when you obtain your parental order it extinguishes the surrogate and maybe her partner if they have legal parenthood it extinguishes that legal parenthood you will get a new birth certificate with your name on one of the problems with the current law is this possible gap when you have your child or your children through the surrogacy arrangement they are living with you you are dealing with being a new parent and everything that that entails, being very tired, trying to get all the stuff that you need to look after your child. And on top of that, within this six-month period, you need to make your application for parental orders. Mm. So you potentially, and you've said maybe up to 12 months, I think that can be right in some cases, you've potentially got this period of some months where you are not a legal parent and you don't have parental responsibility for the child. And that's a scary limbo period mm. because if big decisions need to be made about your child, so the child that you're caring for and that's living with you, for example, if there was a medical decision to be made and you're not a legal parent and you don't have parental responsibility, the hospital's going to look to the surrogate to make that decision. Mm. And they could be abroad, and couldn't they, if it's an international... They could be Exactly. They could be abroad. I mean, one of the things that overseas, uh, the overseas uh, surrogacy agencies, lawyers are good at doing is maintaining that connection. And these things obviously do crop up. But if you're the parent, you've taken your child to A&E, you're panicking mm. about whether they're going to be okay. And on top of that, you've got to think about getting a decision from someone that's not actually in your family unit. Mm. That's terrifying. And I think when I've been thinking about talking to you today, the thread that runs through everything with the work I do is the vulnerability of the clients that are, you know, going through this, whether it's surrogacy, polyamorous cases, my divorce cases. Mm. And one of the cases that I read very recently, which I think is reported as AR, it's a decision of Mr. Justice MacDonald. And actually, it's a really good good read. It's very interesting. It's a case, it was a same-sex couple who had an informal surrogacy arrangement with a friend of theirs that they'd known for some time. Domestic arrangement, she was inseminated at home. So there wasn't a clinic involved. This is a reported decision. It's not one that I was in. Mm. Um, but I want to find out more about it. The... Uh, surrogate gave birth to twins so at that point she's the legal parent one of the intended parents was genetically linked to the twins as you have to be to get your parental orders one of the twins was then very unwell for a period of time which meant the intended parents had that to deal with 
they that meant they made their application for parental orders out of time, which you would be nervous about anyway, although the judges say in this case there was good reason for that. Yeah. That's not a block to your parental order. It's a domestic surrogacy case. So it was heard initially by the magistrates. And at the first hearing, the legal advisor, it says in the, in the judgment, the legal advisor said, these babies were conceived at home, not at a clinic. I don't know whether you can have your parental orders. I mean, I'm summarising, but that was the issue. The case was then adjourned. I can see another order was made with that same recital. The legal advisor at the magistrates then referred the case to uh, the High Court liaison judge, Mr Justice MacDonald, who then heard it in Manchester. And I think the twins were born in October 21. This judgment is dated April 23. So these parents and the surrogate have had this 18-month period of uncertainty. They've been told by the magistrates they may not get their order. So they're getting, they're having court hearings, getting legal advice, I can see that the two barristers involved in this case were doing it on a pro bono basis, which is fantastic. Mm. doesn't always happen. Mm. Then they've waited eight months. The judge, the High Court judge, has said there's nothing in the HFEA which says I can't make these orders, so I'm going to make them. So 18 months later, they get their parental orders, they become legal parents, the surrogate's legal parenthood was extinguished, they get their new birth certificates, but the first 18 months of the twins' lives and their parents' lives are going to have been incredibly stressful mm. because the judges at the first hearing weren't able to say that's fine. Yeah. Which is why, sorry, now going back to answer your question, mm. one of the key proposals uh, from the Law Commission's report is the development of, of a new pathway to parenthood, which if you can go down that pathway, that will enable the intended parents to be recognised as legal parents from birth and to be named on the first birth certificate. So the family that I'm talking about in this case potentially could have gone down that pathway if they'd have registered with the new, there's going to be non-profit making surrogacy organisations, so regulated surrogacy organisations he will ensure that certain criteria are going to be met. So the intended parents must be at least 18. The surrogate must be at least 21. One of the intended parents must have a genetic link to the child, something that we were hoping might fall away as a, a kind of a limb that you need to meet. Um, if there are two intended parents, they must be married or in a civil partnership or enduring relationship. One of the parent and the surrogate must meet a test of the conne uh, connection with the UK. So either be domiciled or habitually resident here. That's a change too. Mm -hmm. We were working on domicile before. So this case, domestic surrogacy could have fitted into this pathway. They'd have done their medical checks, their criminal record checks. They would have had their legal advice, the implications counselling. Had they gone down that pathway they would have been legal parents immediately mm -hmm. and they could have had 18 months yeah. looking after their twins without having to go in front of high court judges, talk to lawyers, deal with a lot of legal work yeah. on top of parenting. Yeah. So I think, you know, the orders are transformative. What the proposals include 
may not impact a huge amount of people, but when they do, that's going mm. to be transformative for them in their particularly particular circumstances. Yeah, and affect the child as well, because if the parents are Absolutely. emotionally distressed and stressed, it sounds very messy and complicated. That really yeah. has an impact on the children as well. And I suspect Absolutely. there's something about educating the public or people entering these arrangements, whether informal or through a clinic, yes. about what the law is and how that will impact yes. them. Because I suspect those parents just wanted a child and they had to go through yeah. the unconventional route because same-sex um, couple and obviously th their options were limited in, in that respect, having a, a child through different form of conception, but they probably were not aware of the messy, complicated implications that would unfold. And actually, if, you know, the clients that come to me, the surrogacy clients I have, quite often, you know, people are desperate to start mm. their family. So they've had miscarriages or infertility or IVF, or it's a same-sex couple. People are really frightened. I think surrogacy is much more part of the conversation now than when I st started practicing. Mm. So you've got um, people on Instagram going through a surrogacy journey, journalists talking about it, which is brilliant. Celebrities doing it and not just the Elton Johns of this world, yeah. but, you know, made in Chelsea, people going through it, which is fantastic. So there is a little bit more of an understanding. The law around it's complicated and has gaps in, which is why you have specialist modern family lawyers. But people, understandably, get very focused on becoming pregnant, on finding a surrogate, on getting everything ready for them to be parents. And the law is a whole additional layer yeah. to that. So I, I used to be a trustee. Um, for the Donor Conception Network, which is a fantastic charity set up about 30 years ago to support and educate people around donor conception and donor-conceived children. And as part of the parental order application, um, the court give you quite a lot of helpful information. You get a parental order reporter come to see you to talk about the process, see how the babies are settling, etc. The Donor Conception Network literature is on that list as recommended reading they talk about talking and telling the child about their journey mm. and how they were conceived that's a charity that do a lot of work you know and help educate families and donor conceived children children born through surrogacy arrangements understand where they came from and how they came to be born and yes the, the legal process mm. and I think I've had cases where what looks like a relatively straightforward surrogacy case. The clients meet all the criteria. They're in an enduring relationship. There's a link. There's a, you know, they're domiciled here. And I say to them, it might be one hearing. It might be two. It will be the high court. But the judges want to make these orders. It's going to be in the best interest in the child in almost every case for those orders to be made. And of course, it's easy for me to say, but the client's going to the high court for the first time. That's pretty intimidating. The judge is sitting up high. That's pretty scary. Whether or not you're going to be able to have legal parenthood is being determined by someone that you've never met before. And I've had cases where in the middle of the process, things have changed. So couples have broken up, which means they don't tick the enduring family box mm -hmm. or in the wider departments. One of my brilliant associates had a case where one of the intended parents died mm -hmm. and the person that died was the one that had the genetic link. 
And because of these gaps in the current law, cases that seem straightforward at the outset can suddenly become very, very complicated. Mm. And mostly parental orders get made and the judges will take a photo with the baby and there's a real celebration at the end of the case which Mm. is one of the nicest parts of Mm. my job but that moment in court where you hear well I might not be able to make this or or you might not meet the criteria or actually I have further questions about domicile is is terrifying so I think anything that can streamline the process that can make people going down that route feel the law is in place, it's been tested, I'm not going to make new law, I may not have to go to court, this pathway actually I think I can tick off all of those criteria. That's a really Mm. big thing for those people that this impacts. Mm. I've got a lot of emotions just listening to you now, Lindsay, just talking about those kind of scenarios and something that I'm thinking of and, and, and something we spoke about before is this must impact you as a family lawyer, you know, your well-being. I mean, you're, you must be a social worker, a therapist, you know, a, a, a bereavement counsellor, all, all wrapped into one and trying to help parents understand what the law is, manage their expectations. But also, how do you, how do you deal with your own emotions in response to these sometimes really tragic complicated messy arrangements that must have a profound impact on you it it does and I think family law as I said at the beginning one of the incredibly interesting things about it is the client relationships and the client connections that we build up I am very conscious and my team is very conscious that almost every client we have is going through something very stressful and Unlike something like, I don't know, corporate law, for example, which didn't click with me and I wasn't very good at, my clients are stressed and anxious. They might be coming out of coercive controlling relationships or domestic violence relationships or stand to lose a lot of money, be concerned about seeing their children. So I think I would be a robot if that didn't impact me. And I know I hear myself in meetings sometimes saying to the client, I'm going to put my lawyer's hat back Mm. on now. Because for me to be able to give my best advice, I can't get too caught up in the emotion of the case. I can't go through that with them. And of course, different cases impact you at different times. So there are some cases where you do get very close to the clients and, you know, I can't, it's not a, it's not a job where I, shut down my laptop, go home and don't think about it again. At the moment, I've got a number of clients that I'm very worried Mm -hmm. about for various reasons. So I think in terms of support, I found I work in a fantastic team. I work with amazing partners, amazing associates. We talk about cases a lot. Um, We do have an open door policy. We have mentoring. We have buddies for partners as well. We encourage people to get therapeutic support. Mm. And and I think, you know, we have a lot of lawyers here that will have seen the same thing. So it isn't unusual for me to go to my former head of department, Jane Craig's desk and say, this has come up. I don't quite know how to tackle mm. it or this has really upset me. What do you think? And I think it's really important 
for lawyers to carry on having those conversations. We had the firm are incredibly supportive, so not just my team, but the firm, and they organised a vicarious trauma seminar for family lawyers. And I think PI Clinic, I think you had done some personal injury yeah. work, as men said, so similar. Um, the lawyers that deal with people listening to this webinar on vicarious trauma and thinking about the impact that that has on us and what we need to do to look after each mm. other, you know, getting sleep, going for some exercise, talking to people, therapeutic support, like I say, and also just being conscious that we're seeing trauma and it's doubled if we're going through anything ourselves. So if the lawyer's going through, I don't know, infertility or family yeah. breakdown yes. themselves, that's pretty difficult. Um, so I think the short answer is, kind of find the right firm and the right team and make sure to get support from colleagues. Mm. But it's really difficult during the lockdown to mm. do that. Mm. Gosh. And I think that puts a, a lot of strain, of course, on the clients, but also the lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. And you're only human beings. You've probably got stuff going on in your own lives that could be triggering dealing with, you know, some clients' issues that they're going through as well. But that's good to hear there is yeah. a support mechanism out there um, and it sounds like you've got a great team there at PMC which is which is fantastic. They are fantastic and there's the lovely bit of the job which I wouldn't mm. want to forget which is when uh, I'm thinking of particular twins that were born through surrogacy who when we got their parental orders we had a celebration I sent them teddy bears mm. and I checked in with the client who's great I think a, a maybe three or four years on, and he said those teddy bears are the twins' favourite toys, sent me a photo of them holding on to them. And that's lovely. That's a really nice part of the job. The listeners can't see this because this is a podcast, but I, I, I'm such a softie. I've got tears welling up now. That's a, that's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure you get many moments like that as well where I think it's been worth yeah. it and um, really helped someone through through that. So thank you for sharing that. The Hearing. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Just going back to the proposals, Lindsay, what I'm curious about is what about the sort of protecting the rights of the surrogate? Because if legal parentage is given to the intended parents from birth, have the Law Commission thought about, I'm sure they have, but you know, what if the surrogate changes their mind at some point? What, how, how will that work then? That's the question. It's the taxi driver question that people, if they ask me what I do, are very understandably anxious about surrogates not being taken advantage of and the issue of consent. And as it stands, the surrogates will need to give their consents 
before birth and then after six weeks they'll need to give their consent again um where surrogacy arrangements are well established so again i'm thinking of la in the us the surrogate will also have representation will have counseling surrogates changing their mind in my experience and i think my team's experience is very very rare so clients obviously feel vulnerable because that can happen at the moment the judges can't really then impose a parental order on the surrogate. So there are some exceptions to that where the surrogate's perhaps gone missing and it's in the child's best interest for that parental order to be made. Um, Under the new proposals, the surrogates can still change their mind. That then would mean that you wouldn't be able to go down the legal pathway. It would be something that would be interrogated through the court process. And there are those cases where parental orders can't be made and we're then relying on private law children orders like orders for contact. That means that legal parenthood wouldn't be extinguished. The surrogate would still be the legal parent. It's it's a much more complicated way of dealing with something that ought to be simple. In my experience you know, there have been surrogates that have been taken advantage of. There was a series of cases from India where lots of surrogates were giving birth, were all kind of held together, but in a a surrogacy hospital, weren't given proper support. And the proposals, and I think the professionals, you know, wherever they're based here or overseas, are very conscious that surrogates have proper support, get proper counselling, think about the implications Many of them are doing it altruistically. It's very rare to have a surrogate who hasn't thought very carefully about the arrangement, about that baby going to another family. And my experience is that surrogates have been treated really well. Certainly, I know lots of clients where they've kept in touch with the surrogates and they have been part of Mm. the family to some Mm. extent. Um, So I don't think... Whatever the changes are made that are made to the law, you're never going to cater for everybody's concerns. You're never going to have a perfect system, even the matrimonial finance uh, law, which has been in place a lot longer and, and more rigorously tested, doesn't capture every eventuality. But I think the proposals help people feel more certain. Yes. And as I say, that that new pathway, surrogates will get counselling, they will get proper support, they will get legal advice. Um, As they do now, we often get inquiries from the surrogate saying, I've been to the clinic, I've been told I need to understand the legal implications, we will have a meeting with them to talk about what having their legal parenthood extinguished means. So I would like to think that there's a lot of ethical surrogacy journeys out there where the surrogates are properly supported. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And let's get into the discussion of polyamorous relationships because part of your yes. modern family work is actually realising that families come in all forms and different relationships are, are, are formed by people. What, firstly, what is polyamorous, for, for just to clarity for our listeners? If there's more than two people in a relationship... I would say that's polyamorous. So I can have cases where there are three people or more in a relationship who then get in touch with me to say, this is my family unit. 
there's this many of us in the unit, we have children together, that unit has broken down, can you help? And uh, there's not really very much law around that. I mean, there's no, you know, polyamory, polyamorous relationships aren't recognised in law. You can't, three people can't get married. There aren't any family reported decisions that I found about polyamorous relationships. There is, I think, a court of appeal judgment in a polyamorous case about bereavement benefits. There's nothing that I can point to. I can't say to the client, Mm. well, actually, it's this case. And I can say that in this case, this happened. This was the outcome. And it's that, that thread again of the law going slower than changes in society and relationships. Because increasingly, we're going to have surrogacy clients or polyamorous clients. And it's very interesting for lawyers to make new law. But if you're the client ringing yeah. up saying, I'm having such a difficult time, I need to extricate myself from this relationship with two other people. And I say, well, you know, I can give you some guidance. I've worked on these cases before. But if this is litigated, it could take a long time to resolve. It could be expensive. And nobody wants to be a no. test case. So what I really hope when I get those inquiries and it's been my experience so far, is that the other parties involved have instructed a similarly minded lawyer. So someone that is going to be collaborative, because actually we can then pick up the phone and say, these are the bits of statute that we're dealing with. There might be a a married couple in the unit, there might not be. There might be issues with the children arrangements, there might not be. So these are all the bits of law. How are we going to work together to untangle this and I would really recommend something like mediation where people can have confidential supported conversations with a specialist lawyer um, or roundtable meetings or private court hearings something where the clients can be heard where we don't go into the court is a blunt instrument the court is really under pressure at the moment things are moving slowly And again, that's really intimidating. If it's a polyamorous case, it could be that it's sent up to the high court because it could make Mm. new law. Fantastic judges at the high court, but that's an intimidating process. So I think I would like to see something, some guidance around polyamorous relationships. And as it stands, we kind of do our best and family lawyers are very creative something that I think the president gave a speech perhaps last year about talking about surrogacy and the gaps in the law at the moment and encouraging practitioners to be creative, to help the judges so that they can make those parental orders. And I think the same applies here. If I'm speaking to someone at the outset of their relationship, if a poly client comes to me and says, this is how I'm, you know, this is my family unit, then I have the opportunity to say, think about a cohabitation agreement or a nuptial agreement or a preconception agreement. Go and talk to a therapist or a mediator. Talk about your relationship and the expectations of how that will work, but also what you think should happen if it breaks down. Because the more, it's not just a piece of paper that's helpful evidentially if you go to court. It's actually more the conversation around that and the expectations And of course, all of the kind of cases I'm talking about, I see it when it goes wrong, mostly. 
So I'm sure, I'm certain there are lots of modern families out there that are having a fantastic time. Everything's working really well. They don't ever have to pick up the phone to me or my colleagues, which is great. But there are these family units that the law isn't catering for. And that causes anxiety and can be really expensive. Yeah. And polyamorous relationships, I mean, how common are they in terms of what you're seeing with clients coming to you? Because the stat I know about surrogacy is over the past decade, the number of parental orders made in the UK following a surrogate birth has tripled. Now, that figure is probably hidden a bit because many parents may decide not to go for such orders or, you know, so actually it's probably more. Uh, surrogacy arrangements happening that we actually know about but do we have any figures on polyamorous relationships and what have you seen in your practice? You've actually identified a really interesting surrogacy point which I think Baroness Hale who I listened to you interview which she is fantastic talks about this lost generation of children whose parents actually aren't legal parents and they haven't got the parental orders so you're right on the numbers and I think there's a whole raft of other surrogacy arrangements that we don't have figures for. In terms of polyamorous cases, they're infrequent, but my peers at other firms are now getting those inquiries and getting them in. So I don't have a raft of those cases, but we get the inquiries and there will certainly be more of them because actually when we talk internally, when we go to when we're sharing knowledge with other lawyers, people are increasingly saying, I've had an inquiry or I've had a case. And I think there's that gap there too, isn't there? There's going to be those poly relationships I don't know about. There's not going to be anything on the ONS that I can look at. There's not going to be a register. So I would be plucking Mm. the figure out of Mm. the air. But I think I can say with some certainty, there's going to be more. I'm going to get more calls about them. And I would, would like some guidance, but I don't necessarily want to be the test case yes yes um and typically are there you know polyamorous can be anything above two that's the definition what what have you seen is it mainly three people or i'm just very intrigued about uh mainly three i'm thinking i've had an inquiry some time ago and that was uh, a parenting unit Mm. of four and three of the four were transitioning and they were talking about a relationship together being a parenting Mm. unit together and actually I don't I don't know what happened in in that situation I sent them off for kind of mediation and therapeutic Mm. support but it is that point isn't it that families look really Mm. different and when people are creating families and who they're creating them with looks hugely different to what it looked like when these statutes were made law. Or even when, again, I think, going back to Baroness Hale, I found a lecture that she gave the other day saying, and the title of the lecture is, What Does a 21st Century Mm. Family Look Like? It's incredibly Mm. interesting to read. Um, And one of the things about doing modern family work at PMC is that we are at the cutting edge of those cases. And understandably, those clients want to work with lawyers who've got some experience in dealing with those cases. There are lots and lots of good family lawyers, but the clients will want to know, have you done this before? I kind of don't want to be your first person. I guess something that you have to have is is being open-minded and not showing any judgment towards different types of families because 
you know, me, I'm thinking, gosh, it's <laughs> difficult enough to deal with one one person in relation, another person in relation, if, yeah. if that breaks down and all the emotions surrounding those um you know what happens after a relationship breaks down and with the children but then if you've got other people involved that could be very complicated and messy and just being that lawyer without judgment because they're not there for the judgment they're there to get advice someone with a calm head on them and you know just talking through these issues and giving them some certainty as much as you possibly can given that the law has a lot of catching up to do that must be something that you you really need to keep that in check I guess I think absolutely. And I tend to say to clients, you know, different lawyers fit different Mm -hmm. clients. We have different ways of doing things and different personalities. And I think it's important to talk to clients about how they want to work with you down to, you know, is it emails you like or WhatsApp or meetings? But also, if there is something that you feel you can't ask me or you can't tell me, then I'm not going to be the right Mm -hmm. lawyer for you. And that may mean somebody else in my team is better placed to act for that client. But you're absolutely right. I can't imagine going through this work with somebody advising you who you think, actually, I don't really approve of what they're doing. Um, It would add a whole other layer of stress to it. And I think the clients would feel that. And one of the things that they cannot feel is that they are just another file in my cabinet. Because it's ma- it's massive, yeah. and they pick them. that up through your questioning or tone, or they get yes. that vibe. You know when someone's you know showing some sort of judgment towards you and your family relationship. So absolutely, it's really important. Gosh, what a range of skills you've got to have in this area of law. I did a little bit of family law as a trainee, but it's really gosh, it's such a fast developing area, isn't it, to practice in, and how interesting to be, as you say, at the cutting edge of that. Lindsay, I could talk to you for so much longer. You, it sounds like you've got so many interesting cases and thoughts about this and really keeping up to date with this area as, as it sounds like you really need to be. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for, for sharing your experiences. Thank you. Thanks, Yasmin. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.